0: Church Bronson Duke here. Thank you for listening in. Uh, we are in our Advent series, and what we're doing is we're just preparing our hearts to receive at Christmas. The Christmas season can be crazy, it can be busy, and it can stifle our souls. But what we want to do is we want to prepare our hearts to remember the meaning of Christmas and to receive all that God has for us in this season.
1: All right, guys, would you stand to your feet for the reading? For the reading. Can't take me out. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, <clears throat> so that through him all men might be might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man. Was coming into the into the world. He was in the world, and th- and though the world world was made through him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me was a, has surpassed me because he, has, he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, for the law has given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord.
0: God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's powerful and it's effective. God, we thank you that we get this time together to just recalibrate. God, to remember what we believe. God, we believe that you are the creator of all things, that you sent Jesus as the redeemer of all things, and you sent us the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Welcome to church. How is everyone? You doing well? You're hyped. I can feel the energy today. It's good. Um, Well, yeah, we had Christmas mall yesterday. It was amazing. Uh, If you're new to our community, every year we do something called Advent. And Advent simply means arrival. And it's a time where we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. Uh, We believe that there will be a second Advent, a time where Jesus comes again. And right now we live in the tension of Jesus coming first and then him coming again, what does that mean? That right now we live in the tension of all the benefits of a relationship with God, but at the same time, all the brokenness of the world that we're in, amen? And so what we do is we go through each year and we talk about hope, how we have a future hope because of what Jesus has secured for us, that we have peace, that we have present peace because of the work that Jesus has done, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we have joy because God's filled us with joy, that we can enjoy the things in our lives. We can even go through sorrow with joy, because we have vision in the future that God's joy will ultimately break in. And today, we're gonna talk about love, okay? So I'm gonna go through the candles. If y'all remember, what do we do each time we light a candle, at least at the end? Y'all remember what we say? Christ is light, that's right. So we've got hope, and we've got peace and joy. And today, let's see if I can do it without burning my fingers. we've got love let's pray and then we're going to jump in god we thank you for all that you've done in jesus name we pray and all god's people said we were supposed to say christ is light as we lit it but we were all just on the edge of our seats to see if i could make it (laughs) next week bring longer matches um or light it beforehand yeah that would be a good idea Well, recently, I got a chance to visit a friend's uh, jewelry store, and it was remarkable. Uh, He he showed me around the store, and I got to meet even, like, some of the designers of the jewelry, and they were showing me incredible things, like diamond necklaces and sapphire bracelets and bangles and earrings and all sorts of things. Uh, Basically, anything that you would see, like, in a a, a pirate's treasure chest. We're going to relight that. That's not good. (laughs) It's bad juju. Christ is like. You know what? The wick is gone. Okay, we'll do the other. No. I got it. All right, there we go. What a morning. So, jewelry. That's my wife. Where was I? Uh, yes, basically anything that you'd find inside of a pirate's treasure chest, okay? So we're going through all this jewelry, and I came to truly appreciate the craftsmanship because when you see the price, price tags on some of these things, it's better to appreciate than to want. Can I get an M in somebody? Uh, so near the end of the day, one of his managers came to me and said, would you like to see the private showcase for our top clients? And anytime somebody in an establishment like this says, do you want to see the private showcase? You say, absolutely, I do, right? (laughs) So we entered the room, and it was mind-blowing. I mean, stuff's just unbelievable, like rainbows of sapphires, emeralds the size of ping-pong balls. And then I I look at the prices, all right? And it's like $200,000, $500,000. And there's stuff in here that's so big, it looks like costume jewelry. Like, if you'd handed it to me, I wouldn't have believed you. So we get over to the rings, and he hands me one of them. I look at the price tag, and it says $1.2 million for a ring that's about this big. And so I have to ask, I'm like, what makes this that's smaller than the other things worth $1.2 million? And he explained it to me. He said, this is a pink diamond. The amount of pink diamonds each year up until 2020 would fit inside of a champagne flute the amount that they could mine each year. That was until the Argyle Mine in Australia uh, couldn't mine enough diamonds to be profitable, and now it's infinitely less. Among those pink diamonds, only a certain amount are graded as fancy pink. And the world's supply of fancy pink diamond, he holds out his hand, he said, will fit in the palm of my hand. And he said, that's why this is worth $1.2 million, right? When you hold something of value like this, it's like your heart rate goes up, you become very aware that dropping it would be the end of you, and you have reverence for it, and you respond differently than you would before when you didn't know it was valuable. Now, if you casually handed this to me at a party, I would throw it to the children, all right? I would never believe something like this is real, but when we recognize the rarity and the preciousness of a thing, we treat it with deferential respect, and we give it the glory it deserves because of the value we see in it. It's interesting. The root word for worship in Old English was actually worth-ship. When you see something's worth, you bring it worship. You treat it differently. There's respect. There's honor. And ultimately, behind worship is actually love and affection. And your heart responds with wonder. The truth is everyone worships. We may think we don't, but we all do. We may think as modern people, we're beyond worship. Many people think this, but the truth is that we are not. We all ascribe ultimate value to certain things in life and we lavish glory and affection on it we lavish our love. David Foster Wallace said this in a commencement about worship. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If If you worship money and things, if they're where you find your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches and bromides and epigrams and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. He goes on, worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship intellect to be seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing, notice this, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful but it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship that you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Everybody worships. And according to David David Foster Wallace, worship does something to us, or as we say here in our church, The object of worship and the habit of worship forms the heart of the worshiper. What we ultimately worship matters, but because what we worship shows us what we love. And what we love decides our destiny. One author said that the heart is a compass for the life. You will go after what you love. We become what we worship. We become what we love, and we all have things that we love, right? As I was preparing this week, I had this thought. In this season, when we talk about love, we always talk about God's love for us, right? God so loved the world that he gave. Love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Often we talk about how God loves us, but what I want to focus on this morning is this simple question. Why should we love God? Is God worthy of our love? Is God worthy of our worship? Is Jesus worthy of our ultimate affection? Now, what does the illustration about the diamond, this pink diamond, tell us? It tells us that revelation is the precursor to worship. Revelation is the precursor to worship. We have to see the value of a thing before we worship it. Revelation is the precursor to worship, and worship is ultimately about love. True worship is primarily an act of the heart. The heart that, listen to me, is thoroughly convinced. Everyone say, thoroughly convinced, thoroughly convinced. that the object of worship or love is ultimately the best thing and it's worthy worthy of the value we're giving it. I heard, I heard argumentation, uh, Austin McCaskill, I was talking to him this morning, or, or not this morning, this week on the phone about this sermon, and he was telling me about some of um, Jonathan Edwards' argumentation. It basically goes like this. A person will not do anything that they don't ultimately believe is good for them. A person will not do anything that they don't ultimately believe is good for them. So how does that play out? Even if we're being self-sacrificial, It's because we believe that that's the highest value, right? When we do something stupid, something inside of us says, but I need this, right? Something inside of us whispers, but this will ultimately satisfy you. Do it, right? Ultimately, we do what we believe is best for us. So ultimately, we love and worship what we believe is best for us, right? That's how the logic plays out. This could be many things like status, like wealth, like power, like good looks. Here's the question. Why should we love and worship Jesus? Someone that we cannot see. Someone who lived and died and allegedly rose again 2,000 years ago. Why is he worthy of worship? And how do we come to love him? Point number one. We must recognize Jesus for who he is. John 1, 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and although the world was made through him, the world did not what? The world did not recognize him. Now, in order to love someone rightly, you must see them clearly, right? In order to love someone rightly, we have to see them clearly. You see this often in young love, all right? All right. Here's the truth. When you get married, you love a narcissistic vision of how that other person will fulfill you, right? People who've been married a while are laughing right now because they know it's true. Those newlyweds are like, narcissism, what? Give it time. (laughs) Because when that person does not fulfill you in the way that you thought that they should, you have a choice. You can walk away or you can learn to love them as they are, right? This is why most marriages at seven years fall apart because your narcissistic vision of who you thought the other person is, is gone, and you're left with who they are, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. When we got married, Callie drank coffee with cream and sugar. I thought, no, 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 this will not do. I'll teach you the wonders of coffee. And 11 years later, Callie drinks coffee with cream and sugar. <laughs> Are you doing it? Yes! You destroyed my illustration. But this is good news, I've worn her down. <laughs> you, you, you ruined the whole thing. So here's the question, marriage. Should've ran that by her beforehand. Here's the question. Who is Jesus really? (laughs) And what are his preferences? Right? If we're going to worship him rightly, if we're going to know him truly, we have to know who he is. So who did he say that he is? We all have a picture of Jesus. The Jewish people, they found him interesting and acceptable as a teacher, but they crucified him when he claimed to be Lord. Right? He didn't claim to be a teacher or a ruler. He claimed even deeper to be God. John 8:58 He says very truly I tell you Jesus answered before Abraham was born I am Now this is the name that God that Yahweh the the personal God of the Israelites gave to Moses at the Exodus to tell the Jewish people who was saving them to slavery or from slavery Jesus claimed to be the great I am who had come once again to save us from slavery and oppression He made a clear and exclusive claim to be God. He was the true light coming into the world. So here's the question we have to ask Who do we say that He is? Uh, I've got a gif. Skip ahead, skip past that quote for time. I've got a gif here. This is one of the greatest cultural <laughs> illustrations. I like my baby Jesus. What was it, like six pounds, nine ounces, whatever he said? And the other guy says, I like my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, right? This is a cultural caricature, right, of how we see him. The question we have to ask is, is Jesus simply a good teacher? Is he a convenient helper in times when we need him? Is he a person of love who accepts us as we are with no need to change? Or no desire to challenge us? Or is he something more? How do you like your Jesus? What are the untouchable areas for you? Tim Keller said this in a sermon in worship. He said, If you design a God that fits you and you can throw out all the Christian tradition and scripture and anything you don't like, you have a God who can never fight with you, who can never disagree with you, who can never outrage you. You have a God who's a cardboard cutout and you can never have a living worship relationship with him. You can never enter into true love with someone that you do not truly know. And so who is Jesus? They did not recognize him. He claims to be God. How do we know that? Through the library of scripture, through the authority of scripture. If we're gonna understand who God is, we're going through children's catechism with, with Georgia right now. We just came to this this week. It says, how do you learn to love and obey God? The answer is, is in the Bible alone. And the question we have to ask is who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, There are so many different perspectives on the scripture, but here's what I wanna present. Without that evidence, it's impossible for us to know him. So we have to go back to the scripture and to see who he said he is, how he presented himself. C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity gave this classic argument. I wanna read it to you real quick. If you could throw it up on the screen. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that's Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of man who says he's a poached egg. (laughs) Love his argumentation. (laughs) He goes on through the train of logic. He says either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or we must admit that he's Lord. So question, who is Jesus to you? If we're gonna enter into true worship in this season, if we're gonna enter into true love with God in this season, we have to examine, examine our hearts and say, who is Jesus to us? So what happens when we recognize Jesus for who he is and we bring him worship and love. What happens with what we worship? We become like it, right? We become like him. The student becomes like the teacher, the worshiper becomes like the one they worship. The Bible says that we become children of God. Point two, we must receive and relate to Jesus like children. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, parents, this is like one of those fun discussions. Parents are superheroes in their kids' eyes until suddenly they are not, <laughs> right? Uh, older parents, can I get an amen? What age was it when you're, Parents realize you weren't as great as they thought you were. (laughs) Four, that's great. (laughs) Love it, Steve. (laughs) I was gonna say zero to 11, but zero to whatever age, your parents are superheroes, they know it all, right? And then around 13, 12, somewhere in there, you realize your parents are losers and they know nothing, Right? (laughs) And you, and, and you maintain this throughout your early 20s. And then something happens in your mid to late 20s, and you start to realize they were right about a few things. Finishing things is important. <laughs> First impressions, they matter. You won't really know how much your parents love your kids until you have your own. Paying bills and being independent isn't as great as you thought it was gonna be. You know what this is? This is called maturity. This is called growing up, right? You move from naive dependence on your parents to a place of questioning, right? That's natural, we all go through this. And then you move to a mature relationship with your parents, understanding who they are and what they offer and what they bring, and this relationship results in something beautiful when it happens, which is you move from just being children to being children and friends. What happens? You're starting to become like your parents, <laughs> whether we like it or not. You're seeing things that they see, you're going through life, and you're unique, you're different, but there's a respect that comes. You realize that they were a lot about, right about a lot of things, and you accept some of those ways of thinking. In our text today, Jesus said, all who receive him have the right to become children of God. We're to become his children. That means we can depend on him. Listen, some of you guys, as I'm going through the parent thing, you're like, I'm still pretty sure my parents are wrong about everything. You You might be right, but I'd be willing to bet there's something good in that. But the difference between earthly parents and a heavenly father is that he never fails and he never lets us down. We can depend on him. We can run to him in trouble. Hide behind his shadow for safety. But it also means that we can grow and we might doubt. And he knows that we're gonna go through the doubt. Can I tell you something? He's not intimidated. He loves your questions. Listen, you may be in a place in, in your faith where the things you used to do aren't working. You know what's happening? You're maturing. God's taking you deeper. And there's, a different, there's lots of different ways that you can handle this. God may ask you to step back For a season and just stop doing and start being. But here's what will happen. Just like children in a house eventually get chores, just like we eventually become contributors in society, God will show you that in his church, in his body, in his kingdom, he's gifted you. He's given you purpose. He's given you a job that you're going to be a contributor. Listen, you're going to move from a place of asking who's going to feed me to saying, who can I feed? This is maturity and something beautiful happens. You know, one of my favorite scriptures that's always kind of wrinkled my brain is John 15, 15. He says, I no longer call you slaves or servants. What does Jesus say? I call you friends. What? We get to become friends of God. I remember the first time I saw a pastor, he, he had in his bio, he said, uh, pastor, husband, dad, friend of God. And it messed with me. And I was like, I don't have that last part. I don't have that last part. There's something deeper there. Again, I was talking to McCaskill this week, full of wisdom. Everyone should get to know him. And he said, Bronson, something amazing happens. when 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 your kids get older, you no longer are constantly disciplining or constantly teaching or changing diapers or whatever. He said, you just get to be together. And to do the day-to-day stuff. And he said, and one of my favorite things is when my kids call me and allow me to be a part of their life. Yo, God has designed this beautiful relationship between us and him. And here's what happens. Just like when you realize your parents were right about a few things, right? And hopefully if you're humble, you come and you tell them that. Something happens. Love deepens. When we realize that our Father God is right about what will ultimately satisfy us, he's right about what we should do with our bodies, what we should do with our sexuality, what we should do with our sources of security, our sources of identity. When we realize he's right, he's telling the truth, what overflows? Worship and love. This is what God has called us to. I love it. He doesn't leave us as like, suckling pigs, (laughs) pathetic. He elevates us, he gives us dignity, and he calls us friends. He'll never fail. Why? Because he's worthy of the worship and the love that we lavish on him. Lastly, we respond to who he is as his children with worship because he's worthy. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. um, What's up, Huggy? In the Old Testament, um, they they did something, they, they built these tents and these dwellings and they built a tabernacle for God. God dwelt in the desert with them, not in a palace, but in this little tabernacle that they could put together and that they could move. It talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter five, it says that our, our bodies are like these tents, these dwellings that are breaking down day by day, but one day we'll see the true glory of what God has for us. Here's what this is saying, that God came and built his house among us, that God came into our pain, into our sorrow, into our disappointment, into the agony of the human experience. And he dwelt with us and he sat with us in it. Here's the hope of Christmas, that God is the God, that Jesus is the one who was not born in a palace palace to princes, but was born in a manger to peasants. He was born in filth and in squalor and in chaos. Why? So that when you go through filth and squalor, and chaos, and pain. You can know that you know a God who is willing to come in and to be in it with you. He is worthy. Why is he worthy? Not just because he's glorious, but because he's humble. He comes into our circumstances. He comes into our situations. And he loves us and he restores us in them. He comes into our broken down places. And he dwells with us. Yo, this is what is so beautiful about the act of communion. Communion is the time we remember the God who was given, the God who lived, the God who weeps, the God who is broken so that we could be restored, amen? Communion is the time where we look back at what God has done with adoration and wonder and love and we look forward with hope for what he will one day do, amen? So here in a moment, we're gonna take communion, but I just wanna go back through this and ask you a couple of questions. Number one, who is Jesus to you? As we go through this season, I want you to reflect on either, hey, if you've been walking with him for years and years and years, reflect on how he's matured you. Think about the things that he's done. I want to encourage you, there's cards in the seat backs in front of you. So things I'm praying for, things I'm thankful for, or you can grab a notebook or a journal, whatever you have. I just want to encourage you, just take a moment here. Uh, Write a few things down. And if you're in the front row, maybe the people in the back row will be gracious. They'll hand you a card uh, because you don't have any in front of you. You don't have a seat back. Um, But I want to encourage you to go through. Name some of the places where God's grown you and changed you. Name some of the places where God right now is challenging you. He's not a cardboard cutout. He's living and he's active and he's powerful. What I want you to do is as you reflect and as we go through communion, as we go through worship, I just want you to let that start to well up in your hearts and lead you towards love. So the question again from the beginning is why should we love God? Because he is who he says he is. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. He's worthy of all of our praise. Why? Because he did the things he said he would do. Amen. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this weekend. God, we thank you for the wonder of your love. God, we thank you that you do love us, that you were given to us. And God, right now, we just return love to you. We give you worship and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review, things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, If you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at at NLCDowntownLittleRock to follow along with the life of our church.